After hearing Chris Smith speak, I immediately felt I had to have him on our podcast series. He's a leading brain cancer surgeon and more recent proponent of the ketogenic diet, something institutions like Johns Hopkins started patients on almost 60 years ago, but something that somehow has not caught on. Dr. Smith is interesting in that he has not backed away from surgery, though I openly acknowledge he is, in fact, a surgeon. But there is a N of one consistency between his comments on good surgery, increasing survival, and the story of Allison Gannett, who a few weeks back was on this podcast. She is almost six years past surgery with no other standard of care intervention. Think about that. Six years post-surgery for late-stage glioblastoma and kicking stronger than ever. I'm trying to get a copy of Dr. Smith's presentation that he gave at a recent conference. And when I have that, I will add it at the end of the transcript in the show notes section. Don't forget to visit us at www.p5hv as in victor.com or www.p5protocols.com or email us at protocols at p5hv.com to sign up for our newsletter. I won't waste any more of your time, so here is Chris Smith. A few months back, I went to the Tripping Over the Truth conference, and the first lecture that I sat in on uh, was from someone who I had not known uh, by the name of a Dr. Chris Smith, who is a, a neurosurgeon out West, and I was uh, blown away by his story. So with that, I am going to welcome Dr. Chris Smith. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So what I would love to do is instead of me doing a long intro is have you um, tell your background and, and, and what, what medicine you practice and how you got there, and then we can dive deeper. Great. Well, I'm a practicing neurosurgeon at the Barrow Neurologic Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, it has the distinction of being the busiest neurosurgical center in the country. We were listed in U.S. News and World Report as performing the most brain surgery of any center, and I'm, I'm a, a part of that. I'm proud of it. I did my residency training here, uh, but have been practicing over like 21, uh, coming up on 22 years after residency. So I've, I've done over 10,000 surgeries, and I've you know, operated on many patients. My subspecialty is really the treatment of brain tumors and the treatment of medically refractory epilepsy. I did some many fellowships at University of Pittsburgh and the Cleveland Clinic and also the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm um, to learn how to do the gamma knife. And I've, as part of a background of, of treating patients with brain tumors, both primary brain tumors and metastatic brain tumors, tumors that come from lung cancer, breast cancer, melanoma, and spread to the brain is the use of the gamma knife, which is a very focused, non-invasive tool that really revolutionized neurosurgery more than 20 years ago to allow us to have a less invasive or minimally invasive, almost non-invasive option to treat intracranial pathology. So I, I learned about that, and I became very interested and very driven to use less invasive uh, techniques uh, for patients with brain tumors and all neurosurgical problems. And... Uh, one of the things that, you know, when I was in my training, it was the, the focus was really on maximal resection, maximally invasive things. And we did all kinds of things with my great mentor and, and chairman, Dr. Robert Spetzler, who's 
renowned as one of the greatest neurosurgeons ever on the planet. And at that time in the late 90s and, and such, we developed these massive skull-based approaches and combined, combined approaches and just really opened up half of patient's head and exposed everything to see. And But at the same time, there was this image guidance technique that was being developed that allowed us to see things before we made the opening. And I really latched on to that and prided myself in, uh, to still being able to do aggressive surgery, but through the smallest little keyhole openings possible and, and really limited the uh, collateral damage and pain and all that stuff. And it really combined with this use of the gamma knife and and, uh, you know, everything changes in medicine. And in my field with this image guidance system and non-invasive techniques like the gamma knife, the, the world just flipped 180 degrees and allowing patients to have complete and aggressive treatment, but without all of the collateral damage of exposure. And so I, I pride myself in being kind of a big part of that push. And then the, my world turned upside down um, about 12 to 14 years ago when my own father was diagnosed with a glioblastoma. And I had already written a research protocol uh, for, you know, for use and new technique of combining gamma knife radiosurgery surgery on top of standard therapy and these little gliadel wafers of impregnated um, wafers with chemotherapy to the treatment of, of glioblastoma. And I actually had him flown down here and enrolled him in the trial and treated him. And, and he did better than average. Um, he lived for uh, 19 months after his diagnosis. And at that time, the average survival is right at a year, so nearly double. Uh, but unfortunately, he passed away. And this the whole time, he lived with me. My mother and my father lived with me in my home here in Phoenix. And I watched him every day. And I learned painfully more from that experience than from any other patient or any other experience, as you might imagine, watching him every day and seeing the cumulative kind of side effects of therapy. And it really touched me, not immediately, but a few years later, that he really didn't die of his of his tumor. It clearly was the instigator, and he may have died of it anyway without the treatment, but he really died ultimately of the complications of the toxicity of the therapy. And that really left a, a lasting impression on me. And and I looked for side effects of treatment and multiple other patients that were in that same protocol. And I will say that there's one patient who's still alive and well who is in that protocol, and she runs with me in this DBACS race against cancer that I do every year, and that she is now uh, uh, coming up on, well, she's 13 and a half years out, has no evidence of tumor, and she runs with me every year in this race, and, and she's watched her little boy grow from three to 16 and a half now and become a troublesome teenager, and that's a, that's a great thing that I look back on. So... So it, it really shows that enrollment in a clinical trial can be helpful and really good for some things, but we have to learn what did we gain from the experience. And I gained two things. One was there was a real need for a very good surgical resection and aggressive treatment of the tumor, but at the same time, limiting the toxicity that patients get. Everyone else, all other 29 patients out of the 30 in that trial died, including my father, and many of them had radiation toxicity and all kinds of things. So I've really looked at how do we get this result of the one patient who survived it doing very well? What was different about her? And what did we learn from how to avoid toxicity of treatment? And so, uh, and I've thought about that question over and over and over again, and I see it every day in my clinical practice and then follow up. And I really, um, again, Dave, interrupt me if I'm going too long, but I, I became, no, I, no, this is great. I became enamored with the, 
with the ketogenic diet, honestly, through the influence of my wife. Now, my wife is, um, we've been married for coming up in 35 years. So we've been together since we were teenagers, really. And, um, and she, when I was in medical school, she was a medical dietitian at the hospital I worked at. And well, we're raising our children. She stopped working, but she maintains um, continuing medical education. And she takes all these nutrition classes and courses. And we almost laugh because everything that she learned in college in the standard American Dietetic Association thing is, is almost embarrassing now in the light of what's been learned about the ketogenic diet. And that this low-fat diet, this, you know, protecting against lipids and cholesterol and everything was the worst pile of garbage that ever got pushed on the American public. It's absolutely unhealthy. It's the cause of more obesity and type 2 diabetes and Alzheimer's disease and all this stuff. And But I didn't know this. I was standard, you know, medical education, you know, MD degree, and I knew none of this stuff about nutrition. But thank goodness that my wife was taking these classes and, and I would sit with her and listen either obligatorily or, you know, uh, when I had to, where she was taking them at night at dinner and I started listening. I said, is that really true? These people that were showing, uh, you know, evidence about the ketogenic diet. I started really looking at the science and reading it really piqued my interest. And, and then, um, there's a, a resident here at our hospital who's a, one of our chief residents now. And he's a big advocate of the ketogenic diet for athletic performance. And I like to, I like to run. In fact, I'm training right now. I'm doing a marathon in Sedona um, just a, a week from Saturday. And and I started getting interested about doing it for athletic performance. And then I have three different groups of patients in my practice that need the ketogenic diet or can benefit from it. Number one is people with medically refractory epilepsy. turns out if you're on the ketogenic diet, that can be more powerful than taking an anticonvulsant drug and controlling seizures. So that was already part of my practice. That's been well known for over 20 years. It's a standard treatment for medically refractory pediatric epilepsy. Then number two, I have patients with um, uh, with pseudotumor cerebri, which really is a disease of obese young women. And it turns out if you're if you're carbohydrate intolerant and you have that unfortunate genetic makeup and you weigh 300 or 400 pounds and that weight gets added to your chest, it turns out you can't absorb your spinal fluid correctly into the high pressure of the veins and you end up with this terribly swollen brain and headaches and blindness and you need to come to a neurosurgeon to get a shunt. So I have a whole practice of these patients as well and I, it's a very, very challenging group of patients to treat because they're just miserable. And they've had, many of them have had gastric stapling, they've been on every diet, yo-yo you could imagine and I learned about the ketogenic diet and have several of them now on it and they're losing weight and they can actually become cured and become shunt independent, I can take out their shunts, and we're actually doing that as a formal study. So that's number two. The number three patient is the patients with brain tumors. And this is when I really got excited. When I found out that uh, that really the glioblastoma, the can brain cancer cells, um, use uh, four to five times as much glucose as standard cells, and they really can't be adapted to using ketones. And And again, I'm like a lot of doctors, I thought the brain absolutely had to have glucose as fuel. And when I heard this um, as one of these podcasts about um, the brain being able to use ketones and said, I said, no, that's BS. And, and I, I looked it up and said, man, they're right. You can use ketones. And it turns out now that I've been in the ketogenic diet myself for about nine months and I recognize the great advantages of being in nutritional ketosis, you feel sharp, your memory's better, your mood's better, um, you have energy to, to burn and spare, you don't become tired in your afternoon uh, after eating. And it's just amazingly beneficial for people. And, and I've 
when I was prescribing it to all these groups of patients, I decided I needed to do it myself, and I'm so glad that I did. Um, and so I, I, I'm gaining this whole experience, and now that I have patients with brain tumors who are being treated on a study, on this ketogenic diet study, um, and a little backtrack here, there was a very influential researcher here named Dr. Adrian Sheck, and she's been nationally known for being aware of the ketogenic diet, and she's worked here for many years. And I used to really just be, you know, typical doctor saying, oh, what can a diet do for treating cancer? I really gave it absolutely no credence whatsoever. And then, uh, and now I'm the number one enroller in the study, and I'm putting every patient on that I can think of, because this process of the Warburg effect. So again, the cancer cells are using four to five times as much glucose are absolutely dependent on glucose for survival, whereas normal brain cells not only function well, but they flourish and do better on ketones. And the idea is with this metabolic treatment, if you're really in a state of continuous nutritional ketosis, you're trying to starve the, the brain cell, the cancer cells, and have them die off and uh, let the regular brain, brain flourish. And so now in my practice, I have many, many patients uh, with actively you know, treating their brain tumor on the ketogenic diet. And I've really found, and, and this is still unpublished, we're, we're just gaining um, experience and gaining patients. Um, but they, the ones who are really adhering to the ketogenic diet give the exact same kind of story that I gave, you know, personally, is that they have increased energy, better brain function, <clears throat> and um, it appears that they're having decreased inflammation in their brain and decreased swelling. And they're, they're just really doing well. I'm very excited about this as a treatment option. Excuse me, I'm getting a little drink here. So anyway, that's where I'm at now. And Dave, if you have any other questions for me, let me, let me know. <coughs> yeah, no, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd love to understand. First of all, you, I mean, how, how long have you had patients on the ketogenic diet at this point? Well, we because of this Dr. Adrian Sheck, we had a few patients that were doing it a while back, as long as four or five years ago. I didn't, again, at that time, I didn't really pay that much attention to it. I think the longest I've had a patient really on it uh, is about two years. Uh, patients doing great. I don't restrict it to just high-grade gliomas. I, I think it's a preventative mechanism uh, for patients with low-grade gliomas, and those are astrocytomas and oligodendogliomas, uh, grades two and three or grade two primarily for low grade. And the problem is essentially all those tumors historically eventually convert to progress into a high grade glioma. So I have several patients with that disease um, on it. And and the, and the longest one that I've personally been following has been a couple of years. And so far he's just doing great. He's had no other therapy. He's had only surgical resection, no radiation, no chemotherapy, and just doing the ketogenic diet religiously, and so far his scans look absolutely stable. And any other doctors out there will know that that could also just be his natural course and has nothing to do with the diet. But we have to gain more and more experience and more data, and ideally it would take a randomized controlled trial. But I just don't know that we'll ever get enough patients to really do that properly. So at this point, I'm just basically enrolling everybody on it that'll do it, and they're kind of self-randomizing. Some people just either for whatever reason, family support or lack of it, just are not going on it, we'll, we'll have kind of a natural comparative group. Got it. So, so let's, I'd love to go back and talk about your non-invasive surgical procedures as well, because, 
everything isn't uh, you know it's it, it's also the the lack of inflammation and risk of infection all those other things uh, and lack of trauma obviously by pushing around or uh, shoving around or cutting around tissue less so I'd love to understand you know if someone comes to you um, with a glioblastoma what you know what are the different ways that you treat them? I know everyone may be a little different, but maybe talk about some of the nuance of, of, of how you make decisions and, and, and what you typically do. Well, at, at the start, um, I'm, uh, I'm still remain a, an absolute advocate for maximum uh, surgical resection. That doesn't mean maximal surgical opening. It means minimal invasive opening, but maximal resection. There's absolutely unquestionable data that supports that if, if you start out with, you only debulk the center of a tumor and you leave this advancing edge going on, it, it does continue to progress. And uh, I don't yet quite have enough faith in any therapy that, that doesn't involve um, starting out with as much of a clean slate as you can. As these uh, glioblastoma cells are just horrible actors, they secrete cytokines and local hormones that cloak them from your immune system and there's just and they cause edema and swelling and symptoms and all this stuff and every single study has shown that if you can start out with a clean slate with getting the the visible tumor out on an MRI scan that and then start your therapies they have a much better chance of beating it and I've never had a long-term survivor who didn't have the best possible surgical resection first um but um so the way I do it, like just yesterday, I operated on a poor lady. She's, you know, I can't get too many details, but she's has seven children. She's only in her 40s and uh, has a recurrent tumor and a terrible place with progressive weakness and language difficulty. And we just needed to get to her out. But I did it through a little opening the size of a quarter and did it all with image guidance and used this functional MRI integration into the image guidance system under the microscope so you know where we can't go and how to protect things and and do it through this little tiny keyhole maneuver. And I use a little um, uh, disposable retractor that allows me to, to kind of focus it and move it around in, in a keyhole fashion where you look through, imagine looking in a door through a keyhole and you see the whole room if you get close enough and you can angle your view. And that's the same way I take out tumors. I do a little tiny opening, but I angle my view all with this uh, computer image guidance system that allows me to know where I am at all times in, in 3D on the computer that's right there and register to the patient so you can still do a very good resection and an opening with uh um with this little you know with this little opening through this keyhole approach and then we're very interested in another technique of of using a type of radiation treatment that's that's very focused um and last while called brachytherapy seeds and that's new, and we're the only center doing this study. There's been many attempts at this in the past. We think we have a better better mousetrap that we've designed to have them in these little tiles of, of gel foam that gives enough space. You're not putting the seeds directly in the brain like you do in the prostate. It turns out, obviously, the brain's a little different than the prostate is and can't tolerate seeds directly in the substance of the brain. But, but giving this delivery system allows a very high dose of focal radiation right where it's needed, and then but very little beyond uh, the edges. We want to penetrate about a centimeter, but past that we're, we're causing radiation toxicity. So I really like this technique of doing it without that. And then I think the, the ketogenic diet on top of that makes great sense because it has an amazing anti-inflammatory effect. Um, 
And the patients that are on it really are not having the same degree of inflammation and swelling and all that that the patients who are not on the diet have. And so I'm really thinking that this allows us to aggressively treat the tumors but not have the collateral damage of the treatment. And, and so I think that anti-inflammatory effect of the ketogenic diet is very appealing. Yeah. Have you, have you had anyone discuss uh, or have you looked at CBD or THCA as additional anti-inflammatories? You know, I, I've had it discussed. I've been to many lectures on CBD oil and we have some chronic pain patients and that type of thing that are on it. And I would consider myself a non-expert in that. I just, I've, I've been exposed to it, but I, I really am not, um, um, knowledgeable enough to know about its anti-inflammatory effects. Yeah, I actually, uh, I had knee surgery three years ago and I, while I wasn't keto, I was grain free, legume free, uh, meat free, certainly anything that, that wasn't grass fed or, and I was very careful. And, um, and I had the full, you know, the patellar transplant and, um, and, and I used, I used the cryo or, you know, the, the ice cuff and I, and, and some, uh, uh, some other, uh, therapy, but, uh, I was running on a beach in 10 weeks at 46 years of age. Wow. And, um, and I use THCA, which got, which really helps my body type better than CBD. But, um, I was my surgeon and the rehab guys were like, we, we don't have teenagers that heal that fast. And I'm convinced that was wow. key things. The other thing is Steve, Steve Gundry, who was on this show. I don't know if you've ever come across him. Oh, absolutely. No, we're big fans. He's the plant paradox. Uh, yep. yep. Yeah. So he's, you know, that for me, when I have uh, lectins now, now that I've really cleaned out my diet, which I started about two years ago, if I introduce them, I wind up with inflammation in various joints that feels almost arthritic. And then it goes away a couple of days later. Yeah, um, so I, yeah, I'm very much um, impressed with the anti-inflammatory effects of the ketogenic diet and this plant paradox idea in lectins. I, uh, some of the patients who have the pseudotumor conditions, so they're very morbidly obese and they're usually it's runs in family. So typically, uh, patient, a young woman will come in with their mother and mother's usually in the forties or fifties and is also very obese because they have the same genetics. And they usually have conditions like fibromyalgia, these chronic pain, chronic headaches and things. And they, and they're just miserable and not enjoying life at all. And then I convince them to go on the diet as a family and have each other support and, you know, help them do it. And literally a month after initiating one of these patients on the diet, saw them and follow up in the hospital and they, and she came up to me in tears, gives me this big hug and says, you have no idea have you changed our lives. I, I can now play with my grandchildren for hours and not feel sore the next day and not have to be on medications. It's just the fibromyalgia is just gone um, on the ketogenic diet. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much enamored by that. Yeah. So, so what, what, what has happened with your, um, you know, how long have you been using some of these different procedures, including, you know, minimally invasive surgery and what's happened to your side, to your patient's side effects and length of survival? Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, I've been doing this for really almost my entire career, trying to develop it and perfect it using less invasive approaches. And it was interesting. We have the largest re neurosurgery residency training program in the country. And, uh, and we have other, you know, surgeons who also treat patients with glioblastoma, not the only one. And um, and one of the residents 
um, a few years ago, kind of looked up data and was trying to get all the numbers and, and looks up, you know, side effects and toxicity and, and uh, survival curves and all this stuff and all of our patients. And, and uh, in, the, in the context of our weekly, every Friday, we have grand rounds and this is the topic that day. And, and the topic came up, you know, with all the data that he said, I, I just curiously asked, so is there, you, you have it coded, you know, who their doctor was, you know, who the surgeon was who treated them. And, uh, and he says, and it says, did it make a difference? Or are we all the same? And he goes, well, I wasn't going to talk about this. I didn't want to step on any toes. But he said, in all honesty, Dr. Smith, your patients live a lot longer than anybody else's. Um, and they have less um, toxicity and less, uh, you know, morbidity. We have a monthly M&M conference called Morbidity Mortality Conference. You have to talk about the complications. And, and I teach this at national meetings. I think the smaller the approach I, my teaching is that any brain that's not exposed is likely to be uninjured. Or if you do these larger openings, that everything's at risk: larger risk of infection, larger risk of of a stroke, larger risk of vascular damage, of trauma, of something accidentally, you know, falling on the brain that's open to the air. And I, that's why I just don't expose any of it. I just do the absolute minimum to get the tumor out. And I, and I think that data really bore it out that there is a difference, a clinically significant difference in survival and uh, morbidity. And and what about you know recovery rates? Obviously, must be a lot faster. That's, Someone is absolutely. I never shave anyone's head. I, I, they're always you know small little you know quarter size openings and uh, and very little time, very little downtime. I just had a lady today in my follow up clinic operator last week. She's out running three miles a day already, and this is just uh, ten days out of surgery. Hmm. And do you recommend any fasting before surgery? Uh, no, I mean everybody is. Um, NPO after midnight. So technically everybody's fasting for the eight hours or 12 hours before their surgery, but it's not something that I've, I've really, um, enamored, but I, I recognize the ability to induce ketosis. And one of the, the problems with neurosurgery, and this may only be appealing to those who are directly in the field, but they're the use of corticosteroids. So, Dexamethasone is kind of a standard corticosteroid that's used after surgery to decrease inflammation, very powerful anti-inflammatory. The trouble with it is, is as you know, corticosteroids are stress hormones, and they absolutely make your blood sugar go straight up. You can't be in ketosis when you have corticosteroids on board, and you uh, and you really decrease wound healing. It decreases your immune response and all this stuff. And there have been some recent studies looking at that, and patients who are chronically on high dose corticosteroids for their tumor do much worse. It blocks their immune system. And so I think the ketogenic diet and going into nutritional ketosis ahead of surgery uh, could potentially avoid the need for post-op corticosteroids completely. And I think that's a very exciting uh, topic. So when do you start that with your patients? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I just, just thinking about it right now, I think it's like, yeah, we got to look at that specifically. I've already always tried to, you know, really decrease corticosteroid use in my patients. And sometimes it really is the best way to have them not have postoperative headaches and nausea and vomiting. So it's a useful drug, but it's a, it's a, you know, a dark side to every good side. And I think there's, if there's another way to do that and it's ketogenic diet, that's great. And you have to give props to my hospital nurse practitioner who is just now, we talked about today, um, in the hospital system and dietetics is, well, to be able to order a ketogenic diet 
on the hospital menu because everything the hospital gives you is terrible. You know, walk around and see the food that people eat and it's just awful. And I see all the vending machines with Cokes and the Cokes and I just think it's awful that you go to the hospital, try to get well, and there's nothing but garbage to eat. So we're trying to change that. Yeah, I can't even go there based on certain relatives and people I know and what I've seen when I'm there. It's uh, I even saw one of the big New York hospitals. Uh, they brought in a, a very smart and capable, advanced thinking uh, registered dietitian uh, who was paid to revamp the entire menu, uh, including on their concierge floor. And it was all done, and then they just decided they weren't going to do it. Wow. Yeah, that's that's awful. And then a year later, someone I was close with was on that concierge floor, and I saw the menu, and and I just never saw anything worse in my life. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's staggering in this day and age. Um, so so. What else, what else can you tell us about, about your practice and, you know, anything, do you, do you publish survival rates and, and, and what I would call not just lifespan, but health span? Absolutely. There's a thing called overall survival, progression-free survival, and then there are quality of life indices and uh, very specifically um, disease specific quality of life indices. And I um, have given, you know, many talks at local, national, international meetings and, and one of the things that I've really tried to push is when you only look at overall survival, but you don't have any index of the quality of that time of life. And that's what really changed, again, with my father's story. And um, and I, I recognize that if you only look at the one number, the overall survival, you can be completely misled. And I, whenever I give a talk, there's a standard group of patients' experiences that I typically give. And one of them is this poor lady. I, I see her every few months with a surveillance MRI and, and she's about six or seven years out now from her uh, treatment. And that included a follow-up laser ablation. So there's this new, very minimally invasive technique called interstitial laser ablation therapy. That's completely, you know, minimally invasive. It's only done through a little twister hole, a couple of millimeters wide. You can place a laser probe and inside the intraoperative MRI scanner, you can ablate tissue from the inside out. And I've been one of the first adopters of that technology. I've treated hundreds of patients with it. And I use it for a, for some very deep-seated and, you know, uh, difficult to resect or non-resectable glioblastomas. And it, we're on a study to use that as the primary treatment. And it, and a side note, it may actually induce an internal vaccine type effect in several of us, including people at the Cleveland Clinic and people at Washington University of St. Louis are doing this as a study. And uh, but anyway, she, we found that, that she had only post-radiation treatment effect, or radiation necrosis, literally dead brain from the treatment. It did cure her tumor. Uh, she's never had a recurrence in over um, almost seven years now. And about five years ago, I did the biopsy and the laser ablation that documented that it was just post-radiation treatment effect. So again, she's never had a recurrence of her tumor. But when she sees me, she's brought in by her dear and loving husband who takes care of her 24-7. She's in a stretcher. She can barely talk, says a few words. She's been dragged to a couple of Ohio State football games because she's a fan, and she smiles if you ever say that name, but she can't really talk. And she has absolutely no quality of life, and it's just awful. I feel so bad for her that, yes, we succeeded in treating her tumor and not a overall survival standpoint she's a win but on a quality of life standpoint she's an absolute 
10 plus loss. And, uh, and I really think that that's what we need to focus on and is not just extending life, but extending quality of life and the, the time that you have on earth. If it's there is going to be something that you want it to be, not just wishing that you were dead. So um, it's a, it's a real problem without studying the, the absolute, you know, brain specific quality of life indices along with survival. Great. Well, what I'm going to do is uh, because people listening to podcasts have uh, limited capacity for staying with any one podcast too long before. And, and I've even found myself over the last six to 12 months that the longer the podcast get, the tougher. And so I find myself gravitating to the ones with more notes where I can follow up. So what I would love to do is a stay in touch, uh, which, which I will, cause I'll be following your work regardless. Cause I absolutely love what you're doing of mixing and matching the best of the really old, right. Which is Hippocrates or right. even Jesus putting, putting people on these diets, you know, low calorie, um, you know, uh, and then, and then adding, you know, the other thing, of adding, uh, I know it's a more sensitive issue, maybe with some certain patients with brain tumors of walking and exercise and getting, every, you know, using any tool you can to get every edge you can get. But any any material which we'll talk offline, I will be happy to post along with the show notes. Um, if I can, I would love to take one of your presentations and put that up there for anyone who wants to learn. Um and, uh, and, and I will make it, um, the, the resource page, your, your, your page on our website, uh, the, um, you know, a, a large area as well as I'll redirect it back to your back, back to you so people can do their research. That's great. Thank you. Appreciate it. But this was, this was a great first introduction, uh, I think for the, for the audience and, um, and, and, and your, your presentation, uh, which I've not been able to get a copy to, to, that I saw, uh, to, to post or, even for that matter, watch again yet. Um, uh, but, but it was just, just out, just outstanding. Uh, and, and, and your relationship with your dad and what you saw and how you came to really not just think this way, but act more aggressively is, is just fantastic. So I really appreciate your taking the time. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to share my, share my experience. Wonderful. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. I cannot thank Dr. Smith enough for being on this show. We first were to record this over a month ago, but had a technical problem. He has been so busy that our first available date was, in fact, this week. As I said at the beginning, I will try to find more information for our listeners and will continue to post it in the show notes listed immediately below. Thank you for listening to P5 Protocols. Don't forget to go to www.p5protocols.com and sign up for our newsletter, which links to this podcast or subscribe to us on SoundCloud or in the iTunes store. Thank you for listening to P5 Protocols.